This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook and at trevorjamesflutes.com. You're listening to Talking Flutes, and I'm Claire Southworth. Now, a few years ago, John Paul chatted to the wonderful flautist Stephen Clark, and it was a fascinating listen. And then he also talked to him again about a year and a half ago. But I thought it was about time that I had a chat with him too, because there was so much to ask him. So hello there, Stephen. Hi, Claire. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here to have a good chat with you. Um, and we're very excited to hear you too. Now, since you spoke to John Paul, of course, we've been in this uh, awful pandemic and you were sort of the busiest flute player we knew or we knew of. You were flying all over the place, uh, performing and recording. And of course, but our whole performance world has been turned upside down. So can you talk to us about how you've managed in the last couple of years, what you've been doing? Yeah, it was a strange time when the pandemic hit, like the first time round, if you like, I was already working abroad. I was in Australia for a month or two, I think about a month, six weeks, something like that. So but when I left to go to Australia, we were kind of hearing in the news about the virus. It, it, it um, obviously come over from Asia. I think we might have had like a couple of cases in the UK, but it wasn't an issue really for us. So I went off to work. And I was talking to my mom and my friends and things every day. And, you know, they were telling me how things were changing. And I kind of watched the UK news when I was away, but not too much. I was having a nice time playing some concerts in the sun. But then things got bad when I was there. So the last few concerts were cancelled because at that point, Australia started to lock down as well. I mean, the whole world was locking down. So I ended up, um, it was all very crazy. I mean, we could spend ages talking about it. But within the space of 24 hours, our visas were revoked. And they didn't quite know what to do with us. Eventually, we were kind of repatriated back to the UK. So I landed back into the UK the day of the very first lockdown beginning, like literally the same day. And it was crazy. I literally landed into a different country. I had I just couldn't believe it. And of course, I'd heard the stories about the panic buying and the toilet rolls and all this kind of stuff. But then I finally saw it. So it was a bit of a shock when I landed. And of course, I had to go straight into quarantine. I think it was for two weeks actually back then. I can't even remember. So I was stuck in my apartment in Manchester for two weeks, which was a bit strange, having just come from Australia, which is my favorite place in the world. Um, so it was a very strange time. And then of course, just everything was canceled. I think within the space of maybe two weeks, I had four hundred, just under 400 concerts over two years canceled. They were just <gasps> taken away immediately. Wow. So I was a bit like, huh, this is odd like I really didn't know what to do and of course my friends were all in the same situation this was not just me this was everybody so I had written the book not that long before the book was released about a week before I went actually I think it was a day before I went to Australia because I remember Jonathan Mile from Just Flutes I was doing a flute event for Yamaha and him in the Lake District somewhere and that was the first time the book was on sale and that was the day before flying to Australia so I think it was it had just come out so there was a lot of work still being done with the book and when I came home there was a lot of packing and stuff like that to, to get books sent out because at that point I was trying to do a lot about myself. Um, so I was still quite busy. And I actually, I didn't hate the first year. It, once I kind of got my head around it, I was busy with the book and then I ran some classes off the back of the book. Initially, I just wanted to do three, but they were quite popular. So it ended up, I think, 15, I think, in the end. But and then, you know, there was lots of people at the time trying to do these online music festivals. There was one called Virtual Sounds, which I played in. And the Galway Festival went online. I've been um, a kind of long-time student of Sir James. And then I've been working as an assistant, a teaching assistant and a kind of assistant conductor on his course for some years. So I had lots of work for that to do because, of course, doing all the virtual flute choir and stuff just took forever. And this was new skills we all had to learn. So the first year was OK. Um, and then, of course, we had a little spell towards the end where we could go back to work. So. Um, there were some concerts that happened, not many. There was a few recitals that went online, you know, where we actually went and played the concert, but just with no audience. And so um, Ashley, who I play a lot of concerts with, he's a great pianist uh, based in London. 
uh, we've known each other for years and years and we play lots of concerts all over the place together we decided to change the repertoire a little bit to do things that we really wanted to do that maybe we hadn't done before because you just never know at this stage what's going on so I look back at that as actually quite a nice experience because we we played a lot of pieces that maybe I had never wanted to program for lots of reasons. Like La Premie I'd always wanted to play the flute and piano version for La Premie but I was far too scared to do it because I knew as soon as I played it, all the flute players would complain. So things like that, in a way, that situation gave us a bit of courage to, to explore some new things. And I remember having to do a couple of recorded recitals that were just solo flute, no accompaniment at all, because at that point we weren't allowed to do anything. And that was, a massive challenge you know I, I played Zerinx and I played a few other pieces but I had never played an hour and a half of or an hour of solo flute music so there was a lot of new repertoire to learn I think I drove my neighbors insane with practicing because of course although I would practice at home they were usually at work and I never really practiced in the evening I would always do it during the day so suddenly they were at home as well so I made this kind of new friendship if that's the word with my neighbors just to kind of keep the peace and they were getting a lot of bottles of wine left at their door and chocolate <laughs> and just to, to to keep calm I remember one of them wrote to me and said she had a really important job interview on zoom could I not play in between <laughs> like one and two p.m. so of course I didn't but also, it changed the way you practice because suddenly, you know, people are listening or can hear you, if you know what I mean. And I find that quite difficult. I always was kind of envious of my friends who lived in houses rather than apartments. The second year then hit and we kind of thought things were going to open up. But of course, it kind of opened and closed and opened and closed. And then um, I kind of was like, I don't know if I really want to go back and just travel 250 days a year again. I really don't know what if I want to do that. And I kind of had this moment. I thought, what am I going to do? So I applied for a teaching job um, at the University of Wisconsin. They had a flute professor vacancy. And it was a really interesting process because this was my first time being exposed to the American system of flute teaching or music education, which is very different. It's very the, different. Just the, the, the job itself is different. You know, in the UK, in the conservatoire system, we're used to having a bunch of students and they, there's a bunch of teachers to go with them, usually a handful, most of the time the orchestral players from the whatever symphony is closest not always but most of the time um and so the students have a teacher but also they can learn from the department as a whole which i think is a lot of advantages in america it doesn't work quite like that there's one professor of each instrument and it's an absolutely full-time position and what makes it really unique is it's salaried <laughs> this is something we just don't have in europe so they get a really nice salary and all the perks that go with that in america but they, they teach the flute students and they run the flute studio, as they call it, or the trombone studio or the piano studio, whatever. But it's, it's a, just a different setup. Um, and so I thought this might be quite a nice way to, to kind of look at doing something new in my career. I, I never felt there was a huge amount of, um, if I'm to be really honest about it, I never felt I fitted in very well in the British flute playing world for lots of reasons, mainly because I didn't really concentrate on an orchestral route after the first kind of four or five years outside of college um, and I think that's what they're really more interested certainly when it comes to teaching they're really looking for um, orchestral players I know you Claire are kind of I don't want to say the exception a huge amount of orchestral experience but um, you know you're quite unique in that respect I think that you taught RNCM and then Royal Academy while not being a, a principal flute in a, a London orchestra thing and I think that makes you very special and for me, it would make me, you very attractive for me wanting to study with someone like you. Um, but I was never that person. So I felt like the UK was never going to really employ me as a teacher. So maybe America would. And I was already doing a lot of classes out here anyway. So I applied for this job. And then I heard of this thing called the DMA because the DMA, the Doctor of Musical Arts, this is something that's pretty much a requirement out here if you want to teach in America. I'd never heard of it because we don't have it in the UK, I don't think. It's kind of like the equivalent of a PhD, but I don't think quite the same but they really require everyone to have it. So I, I spoke to this guy at Wisconsin. He was like, it's a bit strange that you don't have this DMA, but we would quite like you to apply anyway. Um, and I don't even have a master's degree. I did my undergraduate degree um, with David Nicholson in Scotland. And then I did a one year PG dip at RNCM with mm -hmm. Peter um, and a little bit with Mike and Richard Davis, but I don't have a master's degree. I never even considered it because I just went to work. Um, Anyway, so this became a problem in the US. So the process went on and on and on and on. And I felt quite good about it, but I didn't get the job in the end. And I think a lot of it was to do with the fact that I didn't have these academic qualifications. So then I thought, well, maybe I should consider looking at doing this while I have the time. So I ended up 
speaking to a friend of mine who was, had been in a similar situation. He, he was quite a successful pianist in the UK and all over Europe, but really wanted to secure a teaching job in the US. He was already teaching in the UK at a major university, um, but of course couldn't get employment in the US full time without this doctorate. So he had gone to the University of Alabama to do his doctorate. And he kind of encouraged me to do the same thing. Um, so he had a chat with a professor who got in touch straight away. And to be honest, I didn't really do anything. It just kind of happened. Suddenly I had this opportunity to come to Alabama. You know, I wasn't going to have to pay to do the course. I have some kind of requirements from the second year where I have to assist in the teaching, which was fine. It gave me some flexibility to play out here and things as well. So I thought about it and I thought, yeah, let's go for it. Well, there's nothing else going on. So I accepted and in August, so nearly six months, I moved out to Alabama and I, I'm here at the moment. This is where I am right now because we're just about to go back to semester. It started last week, although I haven't been in yet. Um, but, you know, between semesters, I went back to playing while I could around the US and in Asia, in, not in Asia, sorry, in Europe and places like this. You know, it's, travel is still not the same for us, although things have opened up a little bit and closed down and opened up because of all the quarantine and the restrictions and all these things that some countries are imposing you no longer can just go from place to place to place to place. It's just not possible. Whereas before, I fly every day or three or four times a week and move between all these places freely. And although it's not a visa issue, it's a quarantine issue. I can't afford to spend a week quarantining in every place I go to. So we have to plan our travel very carefully now. Um, so coming here was the right decision because it's keeping me really busy and I'm involved in music and I'm really enjoying most of it. Um, and I'm learning a lot about the US education system. They've been really good about that, explaining it to me. You know, for example, on my DMA, I'm supposed to have a flute lesson once a week. We don't really seem to do flute lessons. The professor here, you know, we'll go for a walk and we'll walk to the library and she'll tell me all about what she's got to do as her kind of portfolio as a professor. So I feel like I'm learning so much. So if one day I apply and I'm lucky to get a, a nice professorship out here, I'll know what I'm supposed to do aside from just the flute and teaching. So it's been a really interesting experience and I feel like it's an opportunity that maybe British flute players should consider a bit more if they can find a nice kind of package to make it financially possible for them. Um, because the world is certainly moving in that way where uh, the academic qualifications, if you want to teach, are becoming more and more important. Certainly, if you, you know, for your job prospects, I think it's something that people need to consider now if they want to leave the UK because we are quite different in the UK at how we're working. So it's been a really interesting process. That was a very long-winded answer to your question. No, it was very, really interesting. So how long is your course for? It's kind of flexible. It works on this credit system. And I mean, this all sounds very simple, but see, to get your head around how the course works, it's I still don't fully understand it. So I I mean, you, I think most people will take about maybe three to four years. I was kind of trying to do it in 18 months, if I'm to be honest. And I think it's possible. I really do think it's possible. If you can take a summer class, for example, in a theory course, basically they have two semesters a year rather than three terms. I know we have three terms in the UK. The biggest difference is the two semester system. The first one's the same length you finish at Christmas time. The second one is a little shorter, actually. So the whole academic year finishes in, I think, the end of April, beginning of May, and then you're not back till August. So you have quite a long summer. So you have to take three classes in theory and three classes in musicology, which is essentially history. There's loads of other stuff you have to do, but they're the two things that worry me because I have zero idea about theory. In fact, I don't even have my grade five theory because I never did a grade <laughs> in flute. So I, I was taking some online lessons for a few months before getting here just to learn the American system because although they call it quarter notes instead of crotches, I was already used to that because playing around the world, you have to be. But like the way they name a chord and things like that apparently is completely different to the UK. I couldn't have told you that because I didn't know the UK system to begin with. But it's just been a real whirlwind. And I'm always like, I don't want to say at the bottom of the class, but I'm always playing catch up with the academics because I just don't have that experience. When it comes to the playing side, this doesn't phase me. You know, they get very stressed about the recitals and stuff like that. But I'm, you know, 15 years older than most of them. And I've had a lot more playing experience because of my age. So putting a little 45 minute recital together just isn't a big deal to me. So there's a lot of stuff that doesn't, you know, face me, like even the pedagogy, there's a class you've got to take in pedagogy, which I love. I think this is so fascinating. And I already was reading, you know, all these biographies of flute players and, you know, the quants, really geeky flute, but all this stuff kind of interests me anyway. So I, I have never felt that's a chore. So, you know, I'm, I'm just writing this project at the moment because I have to do a, a lecture recital. Everyone has to do a lecture recital. 
and it's about an hour long and I'm doing mine on the importance of the French school of flute playing. Yeah. Especially from a British perspective, all my teachers studied in Paris practically. And if they didn't, they were just one generation away. And so I made this kind of family tree. And it's amazing how closely related we are with Tafanel. Uh, I mean, we're only like three generations. I'm about three or four generations away. So my teachers would be even only two generations away, three. It's really amazing. So I've loved doing this. Like this to me is not work. This is really interesting. Yeah. Whereas to the, some of the other students, they find that really stressful, but theory is a, a doddle for them. So it really depends. So I was trying to do it in 18 months. I'm slightly slowing down a bit now because one of the issues I face is when I complete my course, if I don't have a job, I get deported essentially. I have to be careful about that because my working visa was taken away from to switch over to a student visa so I have to time it carefully and make sure I know what I want to do so with the university's support and they're really good about stuff like this they're kind of letting me do the course in a slightly weird way that I'm pushing forward in certain things so if I do need to graduate suddenly I can but I'm also just holding back in other areas not submitting certain things so that I can kind of control my length of stay here in America, if that makes sense. I yeah. hope there's no one from Borderland or immigration listening to this, <laughs> listening to how I'm slightly manipulating the system. But that's essentially what I'm doing. So at the moment, I could finish it in 18 months, I think at a push, but I'm just trying to put myself in a position that I can extend that over two years if I need to. Yeah. Wow. I think that's the most incredibly brave thing that you're doing to actually put yourself back into education. It's definitely a mindset. You definitely have to, like, I have these weird moments where I forget I'm a student. I know that sounds awful, especially when some of the other students ask you for advice, because some of them, for, there's a couple here, for example, who've been in my classes before, and I didn't know this until I got here. And I, they've been really kind. I was really worried about how would I be perceived being yeah. a student, because, you know, I've been playing at the American Flute Festivals and things for quite a long time. So it's not that I expected everyone to know who I was, but I have a lot of friends here in America. So maybe they were teachers of some of the other students here and things like that. And, but everybody has just been so nice. And I really just feel like I'm one of them. They never, they don't get weird about it. Even when I have to go away and play places. And then I come back on Monday and I'm just, you know, sitting in university orchestra again, because I have to do three credits in orchestra. They don't care. They're, I'm just, and I'm all, you know, what's really funny in university orchestra is I love it because it's so different to real life, you know? The conductor, he's great and he never shouts, which is, you know, he doesn't make anyone feel bad. You have weeks of rehearsal on each program. So there's just, I feel so unpressured sometimes in orchestra, but I'm playing away. And of course they're all expecting me to do a really good job. And I play all the mistakes. It's always me that makes the mistakes. But I just blame them. And everybody believes me. Everybody believes that it's not me. So I think even they believe me that they're the one that makes the mistake. But it's always me that makes the mistake. So I kind of love that. That's the best part of it for me. You know, this I said it's an incredibly brave thing you've done because what COVID has done, it's it created this sort of halt in everyone's career path. And I've talked a lot with Jean-Paul, especially on Talking Flutes, about about we all have to be a bit more creative and find a, a different route. And you've done exactly that. You've, you've found a different route, been very, very brave to go off to Alabama and be studying again, but it's going to set you up. And the end result- so COVID taught me up. two things. There was two things, definitely two things I learned from COVID. The first was I absolutely love music. Like, and it's not just a, a thing I like, like it's central to my life. I really feel like that so passionate about music and making music and I know we all kind of knew that already about ourselves but I mean we really learned it through COVID but the second thing I learned is I don't really want to go back to the same life I had of just living in airports constantly um, I mean it was amazing and I really by the time I was like 35 I had seen the world and I mean I'd really seen the world and I got to stand on stages and do these cool things but I kind of, you know, I'm 38 now and I'm kind of ready for a slightly quieter life. Not a really quiet life, but just a slightly quieter life. And even over December there, when I had time off, my agent offered me some class and some work and I took them all. And I was, for about three weeks, I was back to really traveling again in various places. Certain places were canceled. One in Belgium was canceled and one in Uruguay was canceled. But I still went to Spade and I still went to the Caribbean and places like that so I was on a lot of flights and I just remember thinking oh 
I'm too old for this now. You know, like it's a young person's game. It really is a young person's game. Yeah. And I'm not that young anymore. I know I'm not old, but I just want a nice life. I want to be able to choose the concerts I want to do, but come home every day to a nice home and have just a, a regular life, you know? So, so that, think, that was an important realization for me. Do you think you're going to have the USA as your home? Is that your. Yeah, I do. Hey. Hmm. I think so. I mean, it, we'll see what happens in the future. I feel from I have to not it sounds very depressing when I speak about it I don't feel there is a place for me in the UK as a musician I mean that's where I lived and that's where I'm from I'm from Glasgow in Scotland but I spent most of my adult life in Manchester because I studied there for with for my one-year postgrad and then although I went to um, Birmingham for a little while for work uh, and then I went to London for a year or two most of my life working life was in Manchester and that's where home was for me so apart from my family in Scotland and my friends I didn't really work in the UK very much when I left college I did I freelanced with the orchestras and did all that stuff and taught and things like this but over the last 10 years I, I think I've done three concerts in the United Kingdom all of which were part of a festival called Absolute Classics um, and it was just like Friday Saturday Sunday the same recital three times that was it that's the only time all my work was elsewhere I never ever have been asked to go into like the Scottish Academy where I studied for example and I mean, I'm still friendly with my teachers up there. I know it's nothing to do with them. And I don't think they mean it with any rudeness, but, you know, all these colleges all over the world, literally, you know, in Asia, America, Australia, Europe, I, I get frequently asked to go into the masterclasses, but never in the UK, ever. It's money. There is no money. Because I remember I would frequently uh, give suggestions of visiting tutors and they go, yeah, we'd love to have them, but there's no money. So, and then you can't, you can't ask the people. You say, "Do you want to come and go give a free class?" It just, it just didn't happen. And I was, you reminded me a bit of of, of my time when I was uh, playing. That I didn't have very much work in the UK, but I had a lot of, of playing around the world, and it seemed to be much easier. And people were sort of uh, more enthusiastic, and there was more opportunity. Um, sure, that, that's that is true. I mean, when I wrote the book, it was interesting because. I mean, like, I would say over five or six of the conservatoires wrote to me and asked if I could send a copy for their library, <laughs> oh. which I thought was a bit cheeky. But I did, of course. Of course I did. Yeah. Um, but I was always just like, this is a strange situation to be with. And I mean, I'm. it sounds like I'm very bitter about it. I was actually, see, six or seven years ago, I was a little bitter about it. I'm absolutely fine with it. <laughs> I'm totally at peace with it. Um, and I'm not, I mean, there's there's a couple of my friends who have spoken about this who have really major careers, not necessarily as flute players, but their, their kind of home conservatoire, if you like, has never had them in. And I guess it's just personal because I had an amazing time at college. You know, you hear these horror stories, I know, but I wasn't like that for me. I loved it. I loved going to school every day and being around people who loved music and loved playing the flute. And I had fantastic teachers, really fantastic teachers who were always very kind and energized into their work you know they, they weren't boring teachers they really understood what I wanted to do and supported that I, had, I have nothing but good things to say about all of them but sometimes it's a bit where you think gosh how lovely would it be to be able to go back to the place that kind of let you follow your dreams and and share that with other people but that's fine you know it, it's, it's not really been that way so I feel like the rest of the world is my musical home in America is where I was spending the most of my time working anyway, just because of the sheer scale of it. You know, it's so enormous. And it's like, in fact, there's a week in March where I have, I mean, it's not a tour, but it kind of is a tour because every day there is a concert in America, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I have seven recitals in the week. But it's like, if you think of the UK, if you had that, you could just drive an hour down the road. It's not like that. Some days we're flying like six hours to the yeah. next one you know and then another it's just such a huge country you know from the east coast to the west coast I think is is it like a eight hour flight or something I mean it's a long long way it could even be longer we forget in the UK how absolutely enormous America is I mean Alabama's probably it could be bigger than the UK and that's just one so many states you know so there's a lot of work to pick up here and they're very supportive of the arts sometimes but what they are good at in America I mean, they, they have issues, don't get me wrong, with their music making There's definite issues like there is everywhere. But one thing I just don't feel here is that they don't, they're not obsessed about orchestral playing. You know, I feel in the UK, our goal is to become an orchestral I agree. player. I agree. 
Yeah. And I get why that's important. And I mean, you get a great education from having that um, focus in your studies, because some of that stuff is really difficult in learning how to play with other people, of course, mm -hmm. and, you know, working with conductors and all the stuff that goes with that. But in America, it's not the be all and end all. They, they are happy and respect people for either not going down that path or for, for whatever reason. And also just to respect teachers a little bit more. You know, there's that expression of, if you can't do teach, you know, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Of course, it's a lot of rubbish. But in America, it's really not like that. I would say the goal for most of these people is to become a flute professor. That is their goal. Now, I have an issue with that to begin with, because we end up in America with a situation. I mean, I'm going to get in so much trouble for saying these things, but I'm going to say it. We have this situation where kids will go through high school, go into university, sometimes do four years at this university with that one teacher, of course, because that's, that's the way it works here. They might even stay with that teacher for masters. They might even stay that, with that teacher for their doctorate. So that's four, five, six, seven, eight, maybe nine, nine years of study in a university. And then they graduate and get a professorship. And they haven't really done anything other than be educated. And of course, they could be fantastic flute players and musicians and have you know played within the system of the colleges and things. But I feel that I have learned so much from just grafting in the industry, you know, and like failing at additions and winning additions and having terrible concerts and having great concerts and all that time sitting in airports and dealing with agents and bookers and orchestral fixers and managers and concert masters or leaders of the orchestra who have a bad attitude or a trumpet player who can't play in tune in the Lieberman Flute Concerto. You know, like so many situations have taught us I know you will all feel the same like out there working is where you really learn so much and then teaching of course giving classes and having students you learn so much through that so I worry that you know people are getting flute professor positions and then are teaching the next generation of flute player here and that cycle just continues no one has ever out and really I mean of course there's some people really have I'm not saying this is for everyone but I have seen the odd situation where this has happened and I just wouldn't want to study with someone like that I want to study with someone who knows the pitfalls and understands all the stuff you need to know in the system but has a few bits more to their their experience so, do you know what I'm getting at? yeah because it's interesting here because I find that in the UK, it, the conservators can get a little bit narrow because they only have orchestral players. And in the States, they have more academics teaching. So they're sort of like polar opposites. And we're yeah, I mean, there are some people, there are some people here who have done it all and do it all. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I had this conversation with uh, another student at the University of Alabama. She is um, looking where she wants to do her master's. And she came up to me and she gave me a list of four or five names who I know all of them. And she said, you know, what do you think about these people? Here's who I'm looking at doing my master's with. And I was like, yeah, they're all really great flute players and great musicians and nice people. And she's like, which one do you recommend? And I said, well, what do you want to do with your life? And she said, I want to play in an orchestra. I mean, I know it's the cliche dancer, but we all want to do that at some point. And I, I have no issue with that. I think if that's someone's goal, you go for it and you make this happen, you know, whatever you want to do in life, don't let anyone tell you it's not possible um, because you've got to be in it to win it, you know? Anyway, so she said she wanted to play in an orchestra and I looked down this list and I said, these are not orchestral players, not a single one of them is an orchestra player. And I know like everyone here, there's so many kind of orchestras here, local orchestras, and everyone's a principal flute of some mm -hmm. orchestra. But actually I'm talking about the really major symphony orchestras. If you want to be a really, really top-notch orchestral player, go and learn with someone who's a really, really top-notch orchestral player. Don't go and study with someone who hasn't really experienced that. I'm not criticizing that person. For me, for example, I'm looking at how do I learn to become the best flute professor? So I'm in a great situation. I'm studying with someone who has years and years of experience with being a flute professor and is teaching me so much about that system. I don't need any help with orchestral excerpts and stuff like that. So this was kind of strange for me. And that's where I think people sometimes are a little bit narrow-minded here is that yes, you're right in what you say is that we're, we can't, they are, they're moving away from this orchestral focus. But if that's what you want to do, go study with someone who wants to do that. That was why I studied with Galway. Um, I mean, he was my hero for years and years and years and years. And I didn't study with him until I was 28 or 29, maybe. But, you know, I was working as a soloist by that point. I was getting recital bookings. I was getting concerto bookings. And I just thought, this is crazy. I need to go study with 
I mean, it doesn't matter what you think of his playing, but I need to go study with the most successful flute player that's ever lived as a soloist, I mean. So I did and learned so much from him about how to be a soloist, not just on stage, but off stage, you know, like how to deal with contracts. And I, I was telling him yesterday, actually, one of the greatest lessons I ever had from him, and you'll never remember, I played a Mozart D major flute concerto and he, we spent ages discussing Boeing's in the first and second violins in the third movement, because he has his idea about what Boeing's work best so that there's no rushing in the, the orchestra. I mean, stuff like that, you just don't know until you've done it a million yeah. times. So that was my kind of version of that. That's what I was doing. And that's where my focus and goals were. So I was going to align myself with the person that could help me the most. That's a great, I hope that's in your tip, top tips. For going it to is because, actually. <laughs> you know, to pick the person that will help you achieve your goal, you know, yeah, rather than my list. just follow the crowd. There's so, a class I actually was teaching here at Alabama called Flute Methods. Flute Methods was kind of fun. I was filling in and teaching it for the semester. Basically, it's for all the education students because it's an education music course here and everybody has to learn every instrument. So they all get like six weeks of trumpet, six weeks of trombone, six weeks of flute. Claire, it is wild. I mean, it was even wilder that I was teaching it probably because they had this crazy Scottish guy speaking to 25 Alabama kids. It was it was good fun. But we, I had a whole like week almost discussing this prospect of go and meet your heroes. Like, I never understood this about flute players especially you know like they might be obsessed about I mean obviously Rampal we can't go meet anymore but they might have been obsessed about Claire Southworth or they might have been obsessed about James Galway they might have been obsessed about Emmanuel Pahur or they might have been obsessed about William Bennett go and meet these people go and take lessons with these people there's summer schools there's festivals there's master classes now we have all this online stuff I know it's not the same but it exists go and learn from these people because even if you don't learn anything in the lesson just being around them it's such an amazing experience and when I went to college it took me three attempts to get into college it wasn't an easy process and I always had a little chip on my shoulder and felt a bit insecure about that but my first teacher at college was David Nicholson in Scotland and my very very first lesson with him I was so nervous because in Scotland David Nicholson was like the god of flute playing and I went into this lesson and he was very kind and he said to me the first thing play me moist sonority the semitone exercise so like 17 years old, I honked through this thing. And I don't remember anything about the lesson, but then he went to me, Stephen, when I played this to Moise, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, you played this to Marcel Moise? What? Like, I couldn't believe this was a real thing. And that was Galway to me. You know, Galway was the Moise, the Rampal, the Tafanel, the Gobert, all these people to my generation. And I really wanted to be able to, when I'm like 70 years old, like David was, turn around to whoever I'm teaching and say, you know, when I play this to Galway, this is what he said to me. So I say this to all my students and to all my kind of, the kind of younger musicians I meet and the older ones, go and meet these people and learn from these people because you will regret it. They're not going to be here forever. Go and learn from them and, and kind of abs absorb everything they have done for us as a community of musicians. Yeah, fascinating. I, I, I think you're inspirational, Stephen. And, and oh, I think uh, I think the the music conservatoires over here in the UK should be snapping you up and get you to go and give inspirational talks to their students, because oh, that's very sweet. It, that's it, this is exactly what they need to be hearing, um, rather than just going down a narrow path with maybe not much hope of success. They need to be thinking broad in more broader terms, and really think about what they want. So listen, if that's one of your tips. Let's talk about some of your others. Okay, so Claire has asked me to come up with 10 tips for flute players, although I think these are probably for all musicians. So my first one, Claire, might seem a bit obvious, but it's something that's become very apparent over the years of working that it's essential, and it's simply be kind and be respectful. And this is another conversation I was having with Sir James yesterday. In my experience, when I meet the really amazing musicians of the world, like the incredible ones, the legends, they're always very easy to work with. Yeah. The ones who I've never heard of are the ones who are always a pain in the butt. And I just think we forget sometimes, especially if you're in a freelance situation, that there are many, many people who are capable of doing the job in terms of the skill level, thousands of people. So who do you choose? How are you going to actually choose people? I mean, certainly in my situation, if I've ever been asked to choose extra players or subs, as they call it here, I choose my friends. Of course I do. 
or the people I like spending time with, especially if we're about to go on tour because you're literally going to be living with them. So being kind to people and being respectful to people sounds so silly, but it's just so important. You know, if you're you're going in as a, as a guest, an extra sub, and your principal flute's not feeling, you know, hasn't having the best day, don't judge them for that. You know, like everyone has bad days, everyone's human. I just think it's such an obvious thing. And I see a lot of people not being kind, throwing their, you know, their weight around a little bit. You know, I see this a lot at flute festivals. I have to go play at a lot of flute festivals. And the way some people speak to like the, the tech people or the sound people, I'm absolutely amazed that they ever get asked to come back. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of them probably won't. I mean, I know of two very, very famous flute players who went to play at a festival. I can't name the flute players and I can't name the festival. And I remember, talk, I went back the next year or two years later, and they told me they'll never have them back again because of how somebody spoke to someone. And, and this is like a really, really well-known flute player. And I was just like, wow, that's amazing. So being kind, being respectful and being just a nice person to hang out with, you don't have to be fake or false or artificial about it, but that is kind of the essence of being a musician, you know? Yeah. And to be, to be approachable with that as well. Um, and then yeah. you're also, you become more open and more able to to listen to what people are saying I think it's 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 hugely important it's the flute world has over the years been incredibly competitive and certainly when I was learning it was a closed shop really that you know you 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 had to go along your own your own route and, and nobody helped you and there wasn't a thought about being kind or generous, you know, when you're in the flute class, you had to fight for yourself. I really feel it's changed a lot now, and that's exactly what you were saying that you've got to be got to be kind and and accept all the things that are around you. So, what Absolutely. about your next one? My next one is moving on to something completely different. It's absolutely essential that you learn the core standard repertoire of the instrument. I see this happening a lot. You know, we're, we're living in very different times now to when I studied, which was only 15, 16 years ago, maybe a little longer, I don't know. I graduated in 2007, whenever that was. But, you know, back then we just learned the standard repertoire. Now there's a real pushing to learn pieces that are perhaps less well-known, pieces by minority composers, which is very important. I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing that. We should 100% be doing that, but we must also learn the core repertoire. You know, not just because you might play it, but because whether you're going to be the principal flute of the Berlin Philharmonic or, you know, the peripatetic woodwind teacher at the school next door to your house, they're equally important jobs, but you'll be teaching. Both jobs will require teaching. Everyone has to teach to some capacity. James Galway teaches, Emmanuel Pahud teaches masterclasses all over the world. Claire, you have been professor at Royal Academy at RMCM. You know, like everybody teaches. You will have to teach this repertoire. You will have to. And if you don't teach it to your students, how are they going to be able to pass additions? And how are they going to be able to follow their dreams? So it's great to learn this crazy piece about a butterfly, you know, blah, blah, blah. But you must know some Bach sonatas, some Mozart concertos, the French repertoire, the standard etudes, Anderson, um, Lorenzo, Boehm, uh, Kula, all these things. And I, I'm amazed at the number of flute players that are graduating universities and colleges who have never learned an entire Mozart concerto, for example, or an entire Bach sonata, or you know, anything more than the one French piece they might have had to play to get into school, Prokofiev sonata, Undine sonata, Martineau sonata. It's great to, to push further than that and play lesser known pieces and explore what interests you, but the core repertoire is so essential. And if you don't learn it, it's gonna come back and bite you in the butt, I think. Totally, totally agree. And it's, it teaches us so much about music making and about phrasing and about harmony. And, you know, we, we need these pieces. I can't believe that some people would get through all the way through college and not have played a Mozart concert all the way through. It's staggering. I, believe. I think I meet more people who haven't done it than have. Wow. They might have all played the first movement or the exposition because that's what's going to pop up in, in auditions, the, the yeah. orchestra edition. <laughs> but actually learn the entire thing because... Plus, it's just amazing music. For me, there's nothing more pleasurable in my job than playing a Mozart concerto with an orchestra. I mean, it's not ever too stressful, hopefully, but it's just a beautiful piece. And I, I, I'm just amazed. I mean, I think you should learn both of them. I, I have never, ever played the Prokofiev Sonata in public. And I have always felt a bit funny about this. I don't know why. I never learned it. I never studied it. Anyway, in March, and this March tour, I'm playing it for the first time. 
because I realized I've got to play this. Yeah. I've just got to, so I know it. And I'm really looking forward to it. And I've really enjoyed learning it, but it's just crazy. I, I was like, I felt stupid. How can I be at this stage of my life and have never learned this piece? This is nuts. <laughs> so it, it's so important. And I think it's great to explore the repertoire. And now I find all kinds of new pieces or, or pieces that perhaps aren't quite so well known and I'll stick them in recitals. But I'm so glad that if I have to turn up to teach a class and somebody plays Undinsnata or Eber Concerto or Nielsen Concerto or most, I know it. I don't have to spend a week before the masterclass learning. I know the piece. I just turn up and give the class. And also it means when I have to play the Mozart concertos, and there's a couple of years where I was playing them a lot, I, I didn't have to work too much to re-memorize it, you know, it was always there. Interestingly, I hardly ever played the G major. It was always D major that people wanted, and I never understood why. And then I realized it's because the G major has two flutes in the orchestra, so it's cheaper <laughs> to hire the D major orchestra. <laughs> yeah, and I'm convinced that's why. Um, but yeah, I just think the way I, I mean, if I was to teach at a music conservatoire, for example, I would have a list of repertoire and every student must learn this before they're allowed to do anything else. Yeah. And that's the way it works. And once they've done it, they can go on and do whatever they want and explore whatever avenue they like. But then at least I know I would have prepared them for being employable. Talking about the Prokofiev, I remember in my second year, right at the beginning of my second year, and I was so desperate to play the Prokofiev that I decided I'm going to learn the Prokofiev and I'm going to play it. So I put myself down for one of the lunchtime concerts at the Northern and um, played the Prokofiev. And it was it was it was too much for me. I mean, I, I got through it. Yes. But I remember the head of department who was at the concert said, yes, Prokofiev. Interesting choice. It's very difficult, isn't it? And that told me everything. <laughs> so I had that with the, the Eber Concerto, actually. The very first time I got asked to play the Eber Concerto was when I was at third year at music college. And I think it was some anniversary or something of Eber's birth or death or something. I don't know. Anyway, one of the other universities in Glasgow was doing this Eber Concerto. And of course, I'd never heard of it. And so I got this phone call. Would you like to play the Eber Concerto? I'd never played a concerto at this point with an orchestra. So I was like, yeah, sure. And they were going to pay me £500 to do this, which in 2004 was a huge amount of money, especially to me. Yeah, good so I was like, Yeah, I'm, go I'm going to do this. So I went into my lesson with David Nicholson a few days later and said, hey, David, I got booked to do a concerto. And he's like, which one is it? It's like, I bear something like this. <laughs> and he was like, what? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, when is it? And I said, oh, it's like eight months away. And he said, call them back, tell them, you know, it's a really difficult piece, not just for you, but also for the orchestra. Say if they'll do Mozart or something like this. I was like, oh, okay. So I called them back and I spoke to this guy and said, yeah, I think we should do Mozart. And he explained, no, it's like this, it's some special concert for Eber. It's got to be Eber. So I went back to David and told him, and I could just see in his face that he knew I had no clue about what was coming. You know, and he was right. Wow, the first time, I mean, every time learning that was hard, and I spent eight months memorizing this thing, and I got it by the skin of my teeth. Like ten minutes before the concert, I was still trying to learn it. But I had a similar situation where I felt my ignorance kind of shone through to my teacher at that moment. Okay, so this is kind of related slightly, but, and actually this is something that has stuck with me. I studied for a year or two with Helen Brew, who I believe was one of your students. Yeah, one of my students, yeah. Wonderful, Yeah, and she used, she used to talk a lot about you and explain some of your exercises. She was an amazing teacher, Helen. She was, I've told her this, so I can say it on podcast. She was the scariest teacher I've ever had as well. <laughs> Away from the flute, Helen is the loveliest person, but when you put the flute in her hand, she's, she's intense. But I just learned so much from her because for years and years and years and years, she's still there. She was the second flute in the Royal Scottish Orchestra. I mean, that alone, sitting in the middle of the flute section just teaches you so much. And what I learned from her was more than anything else about the importance of having, an, excuse me, I can't get my words out, the importance of having an employable flute sound hmm. to blend and to be a really good supportive player you don't have to play you shouldn't really necessarily play I don't think in the same way that you would play the Eber concerto standing yeah. outside the front of the orchestra and of course when I was like 20 years old or something I played everything like you know I wanted to be James Galway and she really was like this is great but if you want to earn money from this and you want to freelance this isn't going to pass the addition and she was right and we spent a year just basically trying to get me to back off and just open up the sound and and find that really blending kind of way and it was very interesting because 
she would sit there in the corner of the room and you know like all music colleges the practice rooms were like a little prison cell you know yeah. with like the, the breeze block kind of walls and there was no window and she'd sit there and she'd have her head in her hands and she would always go how was that and I'd go um um it was okay but she's like no buts how was that and sometimes she'd be like, that was not good. You need to start this. And I'd get really anxious. But I remember this lesson where I'd been really working on this Trevor Y exercise, all about making this kind of really open, not forced, not like too energized sound. And she went, how was that? And I said, it was okay, but this. And she went, no buts, how was that? And she went, Stephen, it was bloody brilliant. And I'll <laughs> never forget that lesson ever. I was so excited. I finally found the sound. And it's a sound I think about a lot and talk about a lot and, and try and replicate a lot. And Helen was just such an amazing musician and flute player and had so much knowledge. Um, and that's something that I think is so important to find that employable sound. Which Maybe leads me on to the next one, actually, Claire, which is don't sacrifice the top, when you're playing a flute, mm -hmm. don't sacrifice the top register for the bottom register. Uh -huh. I think we are obsessed about, I call it the big bottom, you know, like having, is really loud, yeah. aggressive, cacciaturian concerto style bottom. Now that's great. It's a party trick most of the time. You don't actually have to use it in real life all that often. As flute players, especially chamber musicians, orchestral players, things like that, we spend a lot of time up in those high notes. Mm -hmm. That's important that we have really good control dynamically and, and flexibility wise rather than just, you know, if you go to like any um, flute shop, you'll see all these flute players and they pick up this flute and they go, top G, bang, onto yeah. the bottom C. And they go, wow, this is an amazing flute. <laughs> <laughs> like, how can you tell from that, you know? And we're so obsessed about this, this um, bottom register. And it's great and it's useful. And yes, I do it just like the next person. I try and get loud and heavy down there. And I use it when I can, but the top register needs to be controlled and looked after okay brilliant yeah like that okay the next one is kind of related these are this is the last of the kind of um flute one if you like and it's about no endings uh-huh i get you know when i first left college and i freelanced and i spent a couple of years doing things like glenborn opera and stuff like that and then i actually quit the flute for a year but that's a whole other story and then when i came back to the flute I started to do solo work. I, I joined a, a tour and things like that, which made me have to play some solo stuff. And then my career progressed and I started to do recitals and concertos and I went on to play shows on cruise ships and all this weird stuff. But one big thing changed and that was where I stand on the stage. I was initially 20 meters back in the middle of the orchestra. And suddenly I was standing right at the edge of the stage, a meter away from the audience sometimes. So what they hear is different. and you have to play in some ways a little bit differently. And I, I, this is not meaning to be negative about being an orchestra player or being a soloist, but you can, in both situations, you can get away with murder a little bit more about certain things. I think dynamically, it's a little bit easier as a soloist sometimes because you, especially if there's an orchestra behind you because your piano doesn't actually need to be as piano anymore. But what you do have to do is play with a much cleaner sound because the audience will hear any extraneous noise. Whereas 20 meters back, they don't hear it. It just blends into the sound, if you know what I mean. Yep. And it was something that I was very aware of. I always was a bit paranoid about my sound. Every flute player is, I'm sure. I still am now. I had one teacher who used to tell me I sounded like I was frying bacon sometimes, which made me even more paranoid. <laughs> um, but I hear a lot now. People play, and then at the end of the note, the diminuendo, and you get all the fizziness. Yes. You know, like, the, I hate it. It drives me nuts. And I spend a lot of time in my own playing, making sure that's not there and practicing diminuendos so that it, it's a al niente kind of pinpoint precision. And it's really useful when you're playing recitals to be able to do that. Because when you're, you know, you're playing the end of the Undine Sonata and you're trying to diminuendo to nothing to create the most magical moment ever, and you really draw the audience in, and then they hear, you know, and it really ruins it. Yep. And it's something that if I sit in audition panels for and things, I, I kind of notice it. So um, I think spend some time getting really clean note endings. We spend too much time on the beginning of the note and not enough on the end sometimes. Brilliant. Okay. I uh, shall so move on to the less flute related things. So the one was go meet your heroes and go study with them. We've already discussed that one. Yeah. Um, the other one is I think you have to, I don't want to say behave, 
but live as the person, the musician you want to be. Let's say, for example, you decide you want to be a soloist. I know, and people laugh when people say that. I have, when I was a student, if I ever said, you know, I really want to work in the flute solo repertoire, people would kind of laugh and say, well, good luck, as if nobody can do it. Well, that's a load of rubbish, in my opinion. Yes, it's, it's incredibly demanding, but I'm not necessarily talking about playing the Nielsen Concerto with the Vienna Philharmonic. There's a thousand other opportunities you can play in which isn't in an orchestra, which gives you opportunities to be a soloist. And my entire career has been based on them, essentially. But you do have to behave like one. So, for example, let's say some local orchestra books you to play a Mozart concerto. This is always the example I use. Well, what's going to make you separate to the next person, apart from your playing? Because, of course, we all play differently. If you went to see a violinist, for example, or a, a pianist play a concerto, they would not be playing with the music. It would be memorized. That's the number one thing I think everyone thinks about of a soloist, they stand at the front and they play from memory. Yet flute players don't really do that. We walk out and we'll stick the music on the stand and we'll play it behind the stand. That's not behaving like a soloist. I think you've got to really be the person you want to be viewed as. So for me, playing from memory was very, very important. For that reason alone, I wanted to be treated like a soloist. I wanted to be regarded as a soloist, so I played everything from memory. But of course that can be translated into to other things. Like if you want to, be a great teacher you know you want a, a really great teaching position somewhere well behave like a teacher treat people like you would want to be treated by your teacher you know just be that person if you want to play in an orchestra be that person learn the things that apply to being that job on and off stage it's fine to be this kind of general musician but I think just just focus on something and to actually live as that person really makes a difference and really makes a difference to how we practice how we present ourselves and then how we perform on the stage as a result it's hard for me to kind of put that into words I'm not sure if my point's getting yeah across. I think you did it really well it's being true to yourself isn't it uh, and not trying to be something that you're not and, yeah, and also not being phased by what other people's boundaries might be mm. you know if, if somebody thinks well that's not possible well that's just a shame for them it's not it's not actually saying it's not possible for you it's just them making the decision it's not possible for them yeah and actually their opinion about what's possible for us is irrelevant of course we have to listen to our teachers and we have to respect their opinions and that's why we're studying with them but at the end of the day we're still individuals yeah if I had done every single thing my teacher has said to me or not done anything that my teacher told me not to do I don't know what I would be doing I might be in the same situation I might not be and I have nothing but respect for all my teachers I really do it and I have I'm in touch with all of them, mm. apart from Peter he's, and David, because they're no longer with us. But I was in touch with both of them until the end. But I also like I feel confident enough to make my own decisions now, not just about how I behave, but also how I play the flute. There are certain things I've decided to do differently for various reasons. And that's OK, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always used to say to people that, you know, if you if you really want to do something and you work at it, um, then you'll do it. You know, you, you yeah, have yeah. to... You have to have that focus and that passion. We all talk about passion, of course, but you've got you've got to put in the work. And if you're if you're focused enough and put the work in, then you've got every chance of succeeding, unless you have a lot of bad luck. So sure. I also think, you know, on people's deathbeds, do they ever think, I wish I'd never tried to do something? Yeah. They always think, I wish I had tried to do that. Why did I not attempt to do that? And I don't want to get there. I mean, of course, we'll all have regrets about things, but I always say as well, you've got to be in it to win it. There's no, you, you know, if you turn up to an audition, for example, and you don't win the job, you didn't actually lose the job. You never had the job to begin with. You just didn't win the job, you know? You don't ever take a step backwards. You just never take a step forwards. And yeah. that's okay. Yeah, you were saying that, you know, you tried to get into music colleges and and you you got rejected by by some. And, you know, that's, that's really interesting because there'd be a lot of people who have been rejected because in that 10 minutes in November or December when you have that audition, either it just didn't work on that day or they weren't quite ready. It's just a little window, that 10 minutes. It's so difficult. That links me into back to saying, you know, meet your heroes. You won't remember this, Claire. When I was 16, I met you, maybe 15. I met you at a Flutewise course. Yeah, um, on the South Coast. And oh God, Yeah, it would have been. I mean, it was a long time ago. And I kind of came as this like really enthusiastic flute student. And I played something in the class. I'm trying to think what it would be. I forget. But you took me aside afterwards and you said, what, what do you want to do? And I said, I really want to go to music college. And you said, okay, well then you need to do this. And you gave me this list of things Sorry. that I had never, like all the Moist books, you know, Taffin and Gilbert, all these things. And it, I was like, I remember going away going, oh my gosh, what on earth, you know, but 
I'm so glad somebody said it. Um, because I, I was, I, I, I didn't really practice. I played, I played the flute a lot, but I didn't really practice. And so little things like that are really, really important. So when I went to music college, of course, I wasn't going to get in first time round. Second time round, I was disappointed. Third time round, I finally got in. But then when it came to postgrad studies, which was only four years later, I only applied to two places and I got a scholarship for both. So things can change a lot. Things can. Time. Absolutely. Uh, and you're, you're proof of that. Well, um, I'm glad I, I, I gave you the names of the right books then. <laughs> okay. You did. Moving on. Okay. I think we're on to the very last one. Let me just quickly yep. flick through my list. Oh, no, we've got two more, two more to go. Okay. This one I've written in my kind of dodgy handwriting. Be a musician first and fall in love with music every day. Not just for your playing, but for the bad days. Let me explain what I mean by that. I mean, we all have bad days of flute playing, whether that's because you know, like we're playing something difficult and we have a bad rehearsal or we're just having a bad sound day. I mean, I, I get that all the time. But you know, the reason that I then pick up my flute the next day is because I just absolutely love music so much. And if I didn't have that real love of music, the, the negative things that can happen associated with the flute would probably put me off a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, we all hear this thing about, you know, be a musician more than a flute player because that's how we want to play. And I agree. But actually just having a real love of music is crucial to this because it's quite a tough job. I know everyone says that as well, but I promise you, and I'm sure you agree, Claire, there are times that are really, really difficult. And I'm amazed at like how many younger musicians don't, don't listen to music. They don't yeah. listen to music every day. Like I think people should just be obsessed about music all day long and inquisitive about music. Mm. Um, and when I was at college for undergrad, some of the other flute players used to laugh at me about how like geeky I was about flutes like I used to know all the flute names and the prices and stuff like this mm -hmm. just flutes would send me their catalog back then because <laughs> of course it wasn't online and I would flick through and I'd highlight all the pieces I wanted to buy or the flutes I you know like I love that and I'm still I still love all this kind yeah. of stuff what I've realized is my colleagues and my friends and my heroes are the same they're all the same they love it we love having a good old flute talk or discussing you know about a Beethoven symphony or something like that that geekiness has served me so well mm -hmm. in my working life and I'm just obsessed about music. I think about it in the morning. I think about it at night. I'm talking about it. I'm listening to it. I have my AirPods in walking where I'm going listening to this movement of this flute piece or this movement of that symphony compared to that. Like, I love it. I love music. It's what fuels all of this. And you can train yourself to be like that, you know, to find the things that are exciting in music. And allowing yourself to get the tingles, you know, when the hairs stand up on your arms or you hear something. For me, it's Appalachian Spring. There's something about Appalachian Spring that I absolutely just adore. I don't know what it is. So I don't listen to it very much because I don't want to get too accustomed to hearing it and lose that sense of Do you the like the, factor, the, chamber, the chamber orchestra version or the full orchestra version? I love both. And in fact, I played it for the first time in full orchestra here in the US. Mm -hmm. And when it got to the end, there's a lovely moment where the flute covers the strings and it's like a little flute solo and it plays this beautiful tune right at the end of the whole thing. And I remember playing it and I had to say to myself, Stephen, you've got to back off a moment here or you're going to burst into tears <laughs> in the middle of this. Like, it's just, it's so moving. I don't know why, but I love all the versions of it. Um, and actually I'm doing conducting studies at the moment as well. I've always fancied learning conducting, so I'm doing it. And this has been so fun. And I've been learning how to conduct Beethoven symphonies and you know, I'm hearing things in a different way because I'm seeing this, the full score much more regularly than I would have seen it yeah. before. And Like music is just an amazing thing. It's a genuinely amazing thing. And if we don't have that absolute obsession and deep rooted passion for it, this is going to be a challenge for the rest of your life to maintain an interest in practice. Yes, you really have to have this, this passion where you can't stop listening. Otherwise, you, it's very hard to succeed. You can't do it half-heartedly. You've got to be, you know, engrossed, involved, surround yourself. You've got to be surround sound of music going on because you that's how you learn. Yeah, and also I think it links into something that maybe I should have put on the list that I didn't, which is about being critical. You know, there's, there's a time to be critical and there's a time not to be critical. Mm -hmm. And if you can learn that, it will make the whole thing much more fun. I remember going to see a very famous orchestra play in the Barbican when I was living in London, because you can buy these cheap tickets like 45 seconds before the concert starts. And you just get like a seat anywhere in the hall. Yeah. And I did it a few times and I always got really good seats. It was brilliant. So I'm sitting there and I'd been in a rehearsal myself and I was just on my way home and I used to go through Barbican tube station. So 
I thought, I'm going to go see these, these people play. And I can't, they played Mahler one, I think. And the flute player had a few moments that didn't go to plan. Very famous flute player who I know is a clearly incredible musician. But I kind of was like, I mean, I wasn't with anyone. I was just sitting on my own. But I remember going, well, for goodness sake, you know, how can you not get that right? <laughs> you're, you, you know, you're in this amazing orchard. You're this person like, what on earth? And I thought about it for quite a few days. And then it moved from kind of frustration of this person to enormous guilt in myself for feeling like that because we all know how things can go wrong in the heat of the moment it happens all the time all the time and who on earth am I to judge this person with an incredible level of skill who am I to to think that this person didn't you know wasn't good enough and I realized I have to desperately change how I listen in those situations because otherwise that negativity seeps into my own playing and I was sitting there listening to other flute players especially when I go to flute festivals and stuff for the negative stuff rather than actually just going this is hard to do this this takes so much courage to stand in front of a room of 800 flute players and play a recital so I I started to talk to my students about this and we it got quite like intense for a while and I realized you have to learn how to listen so I call it granny listening I talk about this in the book actually so and JP and I have spoken a bit about this when I'm listening if I'm not being paid to teach a flute lesson or I'm not sitting on a competition jury or something like that I just make myself enjoy something because it's not my place to be critical and also it doesn't do me any advantage as a musician to be critical because actually I want to love it I want to love music even if it's someone who has no experience whatsoever and you know still has some fundamentals they need to work on well I can find things I enjoy in that you know like whether it's their courage their bravery their energy you know anything at all um, and then if you're if you're in an employment situation where you actually do have to be critical, then you can switch on teacher ears, you know, and yeah. you can you can listen. Yeah, we can we can learn from everybody. And of course, the music world needs lots of different styles and lots of different methods of playing. We, we can't all be clones of each other. We need yeah. our own unique sort of selling point. So yeah, we, we need to embrace all different sorts. So and you know, surrounding yourself with um, surrounding yourself with negative people does encourage you to be negative. Yes, I, I, absolutely. You know, it's important That's to choose if, if you find that you're kind of gossiping and, and being that person and, and waiting for people to fail rather than waiting for people to succeed. You've got to ask yourself why and how can I change that? Because it's going to bring you nothing but disappointment and misery in your working yeah. life as a musician, I think. And it's going to make you so paranoid as a player as well. I think that's one okay. of your most important points, actually. I really do. To, to change those negative thoughts in, into positive ones. I really like that. Okay, last Thank one. You. Okay. So the last one is something that is really interesting to me, and it's called the laws of reduced expectation. Now, I may have made this phrase up, but let me just explain. So some years ago, um, I left the I left orchestra playing, I left teaching, I quit the flute, and then I came back and I did this big commercial tour for a while, which was great. And then I made a couple of friends who played on cruise ships and I was like, what on earth is playing on cruise ships? And of course we all think of like Simon Cowell and X Factor talking about this. Cruise <laughs> ship work is crazy in a good way, but also it's difficult because you fly into the middle of whatever country they need you in. Well, not the middle, because there's no sea there. It's usually on the edge of the country. <laughs> the ship comes in, you jump on board, you have a little orchestra on board of like between five and 14 people or something like this. You've rehearsed with them for one hour. You deal with sound engineers, lighting engineers, anything else that needs to happen. You play your performance for anywhere between 300 and 7,000 people, depending how many are on the ship. And then you leave. And it is intense and crazy. And every single performance you do gets scored, rated, if you like. It's brutal. So the audience get a, a card the wow. next morning and they literally rate you out of 10. And you have to maintain a certain average. Yeah. Oh, it's, and this is why I actually don't want to do it anymore. Like, I don't want to be judged like this anymore. It's too, it's too crazy. But it was an amazing experience and a very fun one at times. I got to make some great friends and you kind of, it's very well paid. And But I mean, you can't just roll up and play. You know, it's the hardest gig in the world in some respects. And I feel like people are very um, uneducated about what that is, not because of their fault, because of what... The, the media kind of promote it to be it's not like that anyway you have to maintain a certain average it's usually like 94 percent or something to ever get rebooked again and sometimes you do and sometimes you don't anyway 
it's always interesting to sit and watch the particular show and then see what the rating was, because sometimes it matches up with what I would assume and other times it doesn't. And that the highest rated performance that ever happens on a cruise ship, ever, 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 is what's called the cruise show. Now, the cruise show happens once on every single cruise, and it's essentially the housekeeping staff, the barmen, the cleaners, the receptionists, the boys from the engine room, they all put a show together and it's very random, singing songs, dancing, and they do the show and it's always the highest rated show on the ship. Now, of course, they're getting the lighting and the pyrotechnics and all the stuff that you get in these shows in these huge big theaters, but it's always the highest rated show. And yeah, there's some great singers and stuff in it, but it's it's not professional performers, you know, it's not professional musicians. So the question is, well, why are they getting the highest ratings? And I think it's kind of simple actually. And this is the laws of reduced expectation. If somebody is making your cocktail one minute or somebody is cleaning your bathroom one minute and then suddenly they're on the stage of the ship singing a medley from Les Miserables, <laughs> you know, you're going to think it's amazing. If somebody stands and goes, I played Jean Valjean in Les Miserables for the last 17 years and now I'll just sing the medley for you, you're already judging them before they sing that first one because you're expecting a certain level. And this is the laws of reduced expectation. And it's something I've really tried to use a lot in my career. Play your, don't play yourself down, but don't play yourself too high. It's always nicer to pleasantly surprise people than to enormously disappoint. I like that too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, Stephen, absolutely fantastic. I love your tips. Absolutely brilliant. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. So I think we're going to have to leave it there, but I do want to mention that I think everyone should have a look at your website. Oh, thank and you. I've only just seen today the, the, the cover of your CD soundtrack with you with a picture <laughs> of Superman. I love it. And I love the clips you've got on. So everyone should go and have a listen. It's uh, Stephen Clark. Stephenclarkflute.com, yeah. Flute.com, yeah, which is very easy to find. They sounded fantastic. I loved it. I wish you much success in your, in your course uh, in Alabama. I hope it goes really well. And looking forward to seeing what you do with the rest of your career it sounds that it could be very very exciting and if there's anybody from the conservatoires listening book Stephen I think you should go and talk to all the students I think you're an absolute inspiration and um, thank you Claire that's very kind I really think you should be a part of the curriculum everywhere so it's that's been very great. sweet. And thank you for doing these podcasts. I listen to these podcasts with you and JP every single time I get on a flight, which is a lot, and they make the journey so much easier. So thank you for doing it. And I'm very flattered to be here. It's a real privilege to be on this it's with you. It's been great. Love talking to you. Thank you so much. And I'd love to talk to you again soon. Sure. Anytime. Anytime. You take care and lots thank of you, Claire. everything. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.